Sketches by Boz, Section Fifty Four. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens, Section Fifty Four. Tales, Chapter Nine. Mrs. Joseph Porter. Most extensive were the preparations at Rose Villa, Clapham Rise, in the occupation of Mr. Gattleton, a stockbroker in especially comfortable circumstances, and great was the anxiety of Mr. Gattleton's interesting family as the day fixed for the representation of the private play which had been many months in preparation approached. The whole family was infected with the mania for private theatricals, the house, usually so clean and tidy, was, to use Mr. Gattleton's expressive description, regularly turned out of windows. The large dining-room, dismantled of its furniture and ornaments, presented a strange jumble of flats, flies, wings, lamps, bridges, clouds, thunder and lightning, festoons and flowers, daggers and foil, and various other messes in theatrical slang included under the comprehensive name of properties the bedrooms were crowded with scenery the kitchen was occupied by carpenters rehearsals took place every other night in the drawing-room and every sofa in the house was more or less damaged by the perseverance and spirit with which mr sempronius gattleton and miss lucina rehearsed the smothering scene in othello it having been determined that that tragedy should form the first portion of the evening's entertainment when we are a little more perfect i think it will go admirably said mr sempronius addressing his corps dramatique at the conclusion of the hundred and fiftieth rehearsal in consideration of his sustaining the trifling inconvenience of bearing all the expenses of the play mr sempronius had been in the most handsome manner unanimously elected stage manager Evans, continued Mr. Gattleton, the younger, addressing a tall, thin, pale young gentleman with extensive whiskers, Evans, you play Rodrigo beautifully. Beautifully, echoed the three Miss Gattletons, for Mr. Evans was pronounced by all his lady friends to be quite a dear. He looked so interesting, and had such lovely whiskers, to say nothing of his talent for writing verses in albums and playing the flute, Rodrigo simpered and bowed but i think added the manager you are hardly perfect in the fall in the fencing scene where you are you understand it's very difficult said mr evans thoughtfully i've fallen about a good deal in our counting-house lately for practice only i find it hurts one so being obliged to fall backwards you see it bruises one's head a good deal but you must take care you don't knock a wing down said mr gattleton the elder who had been appointed prompter and who took so much interest in the play as the youngest of the company the stage is very narrow you know oh don't be afraid said mr evans with a very self-satisfied air i shall fall with my head off and then i can't do any harm but egad said the manager rubbing his hands we shall make a decided hit in Marsognao. Harley sings that music admirably. Everybody echoed the sentiment. Mr. Harley smiled and looked foolish, not an unusual thing with him, hummed, Behold how brightly breaks the morning, and blushed as red as the fisherman's nightcap he was trying on. Let's see, resumed the manager, telling the number on his fingers. We shall have three dancing female peasants, besides Fenella, and four fishermen then there's our man tom he can have a pair of ducks of mine and a check shirt of bob's and a red nightcap and he'll do for another that's five 
in the choruses of course we can sing at the sides and in the market scene we can walk about in cloaks and things when the revolt takes place tom must keep rushing in on one side and out on the other with a pickaxe as fast as he can the effect will be electrical it will look exactly as if there were an immense number of em and in the eruption scene we must burn the red fire and upset the tea-trays and make all sorts of noises and it's sure to do sure sure cried all the performers univoque and away hurried mr sempronius gattleton to wash the burnt cork off his face and superintend the setting up of some of the amateur painted but never sufficiently to be admired scenery mrs gattleton was a kind good-tempered vulgar soul exceedingly fond of her husband and children and entertaining only three dislikes in the first place she had a natural antipathy to anybody else's unmarried daughters in the second she was in bodily fear of anything in the shape of ridicule lastly almost a necessary consequence of this feeling she regarded with feelings of the utmost horror one mrs joseph porter over the way however the good folks of clapham and its vicinity stood very much in awe of scandal and sarcasm and thus mrs joseph porter was courted and flattered and caressed and invited for much the same reason that induces a poor author without a farthing in his pocket to behave with extraordinary civility to a tuppenny postman never mind ma said miss emma porter in colloquy with her respective relative and trying to look unconcerned if they had invited me you know that neither you nor pa would have allowed me to take part in such an exhibition just what i should have thought from your high sense of propriety returned the mother i am glad to see emma you know how to designate the proceeding miss p by the by had only the week before made an exhibition of herself for four days behind a counter at a fancy fair to all and every of her majesty's liege subjects who were disposed to pay a shilling each for the privilege of seeing some four dozen girls flirting with strangers and playing at shop there said mrs porter looking out of window there are two rounds of beef and a ham going in clearly for sandwiches and thomas the pastry-cook says there have been twelve dozen tarts ordered besides blancmange and jellies upon my word think of the miss gattletons in fancy dresses too oh it's too ridiculous said miss porter hysterically i'll manage to put them a little out of conceit with the business however said mrs porter and out she went on her charitable errand well my dear mrs gattleton said mrs joseph porter after they had been closeted for some time and when by dint of indefatigable pumping she had managed to extract all the news about the play well my dear people may say what they please indeed we know they will for some folks are so ill-natured ah my dear miss lucina how do you do i was just telling your mamma that i have heard it said that what mrs porter is alluding to the play my dear said mrs gattleton she was i am sorry to say just informing me that oh now pray don't mention it interrupted mrs porter it's most absurd quite as absurd as young what's-his-name saying he wondered how miss caroline with such a foot and ankle could have the vanity to play fenella 
highly impertinent whoever said it said mrs gattleton bridling up certainly my dear chimed in the delightful mrs porter most undoubtedly because as i said if miss caroline does play fenella it doesn't follow as a matter of course that she should think she has a pretty foot and then such puppies as these young men are he had the impudence to say that how far the amiable mrs porter might have succeeded in her pleasant purpose it is impossible to say had not the entrance of mr thomas balderstone mrs gattleton's brother familiarly called in the family uncle tom changed the course of the conversation and suggested to her mind an excellent plan of operation on the evening of the play uncle tom was very rich and exceedingly fond of his nephews and nieces as a matter of course, therefore, he was an object of great importance in his own family. He was one of the best-hearted men in existence, always in a good temper and always talking. It was his boast that he wore top boots on all occasions, and had never worn a black silk neckerchief. It was his pride that he remembered all the principal plays of Shakespeare from beginning to end, and so he did. The result of this parrot-like accomplishment was— that he was not only perpetually quoting himself, but that he could never sit by and hear a misquotation from the Swan of Avon without setting the unfortunate delinquent right. He was also something of a wag, never missed an opportunity of saying what he considered a good thing, and invariably laughed until he cried at anything that appeared to him mirth-moving or ridiculous. "'Well, girls,' said Uncle Tom, after the preparatory ceremony of kissing and how-do-you-doing had gone through, "'how do you get on?' know your parts eh lucina my dear act two scene one place left cue unknown fate what's next eh go on the heavens oh yes said miss lucina i recollect the heavens forbid but that our loves and comforts should increase even as our days do grow make a pause here and there said the old gentleman who was a great critic but that our loves and comforts should increase emphasis on the last syllable crease loud even one two three four then loud again as our days do grow emphasis on days that's the way my dear trust to your uncle for emphasis ah sem my boy how are you very well thank ye uncle returned mr sempronius who had just appeared looking something like a ring-dove with a small circle round each eye and the result of his constant corking of course we see you on thursday of course of course my dear boy what a pity it is that your nephew didn't think of making you prompter mr balderstone whispered mrs joseph porter you would have been invaluable well i flatter myself i should have been tolerably up to the thing responded uncle tom i must bespeak sitting next to you on the night resumed mrs porter and then if our dear young friends here should be at all wrong you will be able to enlighten me i shall be so interested i am sure i shall be most happy to give you any assistance in my power mind it's a bargain certainly i don't know how it is said mrs gattleton to her daughters as they were sitting round the fire in the evening looking over their parts but i really very much wish mrs joseph porter wasn't coming on thursday I am sure she's scheming something. She can't make us ridiculous, however, observed Mr. Sempronius Gattleton haughtily. The long-looked-for Thursday arrived in due course, and brought with it, as Mr. Gattleton, senior, philosophically observed, no disappointments to speak of. 
True, it was yet a matter of doubt whether Cassio would be enabled to get into the dress which had been sent for him from the masquerade warehouse. It was equally uncertain whether the principal female singer would be sufficiently recovered from the influenza to make her appearance. Mr. Harley, the Massianello of the night, was hoarse, and rather unwell, in consequence of the great quantity of lemon and sugar candy he had eaten to improve his voice, and two flutes and a violoncello had pleaded several colds. What of that? The audience were all coming. Everybody knew his part. The dresses were covered with tinsel and spangles, the white plumes looked beautiful, Mr. Evans had practised falling until he was bruised from head to foot and quite perfect. Iago was sure that, in the stabbing scene, he should make a decided hit. A self-taught deaf gentleman, who had kindly offered to bring his flute, would be a most valuable addition to the orchestra. Miss Jenkins' talent for the piano was too well known to be doubted for an instant. Mr. Cape had practised the violin accompaniment with her frequently, and Mr. Brown, who had kindly undertaken at a few hours' notice to bring his violin-cello, would no doubt manage extremely well. Seven o'clock came, and so did the audience. All the rank and fashion of Clapham and its vicinity was fast filling the theatre. There were the Smiths, the Gubbinses, the Nixons, the Dixons, the Hicksons, people with all sorts of names, two aldermen, a sheriff in perspective, Sir Thomas Glumper, who had been knighted in the last reign for carrying up an address on somebody's escaping from nothing, and last, not least, there were Mrs. Joseph Porter and Uncle Tom, seated in the centre of the third row from the stage, Mrs. P. amusing Uncle Tom with all sorts of stories, and Uncle Tom amusing everyone else by laughing most immoderately. Ting-ting-ting went the prompter's bell at eight o'clock precisely, and dash went the orchestra into the overture to the Men of Prometheus. The pianoforte player hammered away with laudable perseverance, and the violoncello, which struck in at intervals, sounded very well, considering. The unfortunate individual, however, who had undertaken to play the flute accompaniment at sight, found from fatal experience the perfect truth of the old adage, out of sight, out of mind, for being very near-sighted and being placed at a considerable distance from his music-book, all he had an opportunity of doing was to play a bar now and then in the wrong place, and put the other performers out. It is, however, but justice to Mr. Brown to say that he did this to admiration. The overture, in fact, was not unlike a race between the different instruments. The piano came in first by several bars, and the violoncello next, quite distancing the poor flute, for the deaf gentleman toot-tooed away, quite unconscious that he was at all wrong, until apprised, by the applause of the audience, that the overture was concluded. A considerable bustle and shuffling of feet was then heard upon the stage, accompanied by whispers of, "'Here's a pretty go! What's to be done?' etc. The audience applauded again by way of raising the spirits of the performers, and then Mr. Sempronius desired the prompter, in a very audible voice, to clear the stage and ring up. Ting-ting-ting went the bell again. Everybody sat down. The curtain shook, rose sufficiently high to display several pair of yellow boots paddling about, and there remained. Ting-ting-ting went the bell again. The curtain was violently convulsed, but rose no higher. The audience tittered. Mrs. Porter looked at Uncle Tom. Uncle Tom looked at everybody, rubbing his hands and laughing with perfect rapture. 
after as much ringing with the little bell as a muffin-boy would make in going down a tolerably long street, and a vast deal of whispering, hammering, and calling for nails and cord, the curtain at length rose, and discovered Mr. Sempronius Gattleton solus, and decked for Othello. After three distinct rounds of applause, during which Mr. Sempronius applied his right hand to his left breast, and bowed in the most approved manner, the manager advanced and said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, I assure you it is with sincere regret that I regret to be compelled to inform you that Iago, who was to have played Mr. Wilson—I beg your pardon, ladies and gentlemen, but I am naturally somewhat agitated—applause—I mean Mr. Wilson, who was to have played Iago, is—that is, has been—or, in other words, ladies and gentlemen, the fact is that I have just received a note in which I am informed that Iago is unavoidably detained at the post-office this evening. Under these circumstances, I trust, uh, um, amateur performance, uh, another gentleman, undertaken to read the part, request indulgence for a short time, courtesy and kindness of a British audience. Overwhelming applause. Exit Mr. Sempronius Gattleton and Curtain Falls. The audience were, of course, exceedingly good-humoured. The whole business was a joke, and accordingly they waited for an hour with the utmost patience, being enlivened by an interlude of rout-cakes and lemonade. It appeared by Mr. Sempronius' subsequent explanation that the delay would not have been so great had it not so happened that when the substitute Iago had finished dressing, and just as the play was on the point of commencing, the original Iago unexpectedly arrived. The former was therefore compelled to undress, and the latter to dress for his part, which, as he found some difficulty in getting into his clothes, occupied no inconsiderable time. At length the tragedy began in real earnest. It went off well enough until the third scene of the first act, in which Othello addresses the Senate. The only remarkable circumstance being that, as Iago could not get on any of the stage-boots, in consequence of his feet being violently swelled with the heat and excitement, he was under the necessity of playing the part in a pair of wellingtons, which contrasted rather oddly with his richly embroidered pantaloons. When Othello started with his address to the Senate, whose dignity was represented by the Duke, a carpenter, two men engaged on the recommendation of the gardener and a boy, Mrs. Porter found the opportunity she so anxiously sought. Mr. Sempronius proceeded, "'Most potent, grave, and reverend signors, my very noble and approved good masters, that I obtain away this old man's daughter, it is most true. Rude am I in my speech.' "'Is that right?' whispered Mrs. Porter to Uncle Tom. "'No. Tell him so, then.' "'I will.' "'Sem!' called out Uncle Tom. "'That's wrong, my boy.' "'What's wrong, Uncle?' demanded Othello, quite forgetting the dignity of his situation. "'You've left out something. True, I have married—' "'Oh, ah!' said Mr. Sempronius, endeavouring to hide his confusion as much and as ineffectually as the audience attempted to conceal their half-surprised tittering, by coughing with extreme violence. "'True, I have married her.' the very head and front of my offending, hath this extent no more. Aside, why don't you prompt, father? Because I've mislaid my spectacles, said poor Mr. Gattleton, almost dead with the heat and bustle. There, now it's rude am I, said Uncle Tom. 
"'Yes, I know it is,' returned the unfortunate manager, proceeding with his part. "'It would be useless and tiresome to quote the number of instances in which Uncle Tom, now completely in his element and instigated by the mischievous Mrs. Porter, corrected the mistakes of the performers. Suffice it to say that, having mounted his hobby, nothing could induce him to dismount. So, during the whole remainder of the play, he performed a kind of running accompaniment by muttering everybody's part as it was being delivered in an undertone. The audience were highly amused. Mrs. Porter delighted, the performers embarrassed. Uncle Tom never was better pleased in all his life, and Uncle Tom's nephews and nieces had never, although the declared heirs to his large property, so heartily wished him gathered to his father's as on that memorable occasion. Several other minor causes, too, united to damp the ardour of the dramatis personae. None of the performers could walk in their tights, or move their arms in their jackets, the pantaloons were too small, the boots too large, and the swords of all shapes and sizes. Mr. Evans, naturally too tall for the scenery, wore a black velvet hat with immense white plumes, the glory of which was lost in the flies, and the only other inconvenience of which was that when it was off his head he could not put it on, and when it was on he could not take it off notwithstanding all his practice too he fell with his head and shoulders as neatly through one of the side scenes as a harlequin would jump through a panel in a christmas pantomime the pianoforte player overpowered by the extreme heat of the room fainted away at the commencement of the entertainments leaving the music of Massinello to the flute and violoncello the orchestra complained that mr harley put them out and mr harley declared that the orchestra prevented his singing a note the fishermen, who were hired for the occasion, revolted to the very life, positively refusing to play without an increased allowance of spirits, and their demand being complied with, getting drunk in the eruption scene as naturally as possible. The red fire which was burnt at the conclusion of the second act not only neatly suffocated the audience, but nearly set the house on fire into the bargain, and, as it was, the remainder of the piece was acted in a thick fog. In short, the whole affair was, as Mrs. Joseph Porter triumphantly told everybody, a complete failure. The audience went home at four o'clock in the morning, exhausted with laughter, suffering from severe headaches, and smelling terribly of brimstone and gunpowder. The Messrs. Gattleton, senior and junior, returned to rest with the vague idea of emigrating to Swan River early in the ensuing week. Rosavilla has once again resumed its wonted appearance. The dining-room furniture has been replaced, the tables are as nicely polished as formerly, the horsehair chairs are ranged against the wall, and regularly as ever. Venetian blinds have been fitted to every window in the house to intercept the prying gaze of Mrs. Joseph Porter. The subject of theatricals is never mentioned in the Gattleton family, unless, indeed, by Uncle Tom, who cannot refrain from sometimes expressing his surprise and regret at finding that his nephews and nieces appear to have lost the relish they once possessed for the beauties of Shakespeare, and quotations from the works of that immortal bard. End of section 54